You're listening to the New Life Church Sunday Morning Podcast. We're a family of believers in Anderson, Missouri, that want to experience God in a real way, both inside and outside the walls of a building. For more Sunday messages, upcoming events, or to get in touch, visit new-life-church.net. So I might ask you to stand up and down a couple times this morning because if you're like me, you might be a little bit low on sleep, all right? So I just want to make sure we're all in this together. So if you wouldn't mind, stand with me while we read this morning's text. If you are unable to, that's quite all right. Maybe you could like bounce your legs while you're sitting or something. I don't know. Just got to keep that blood moving. (laughs) Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Amen. This is God's word. We are going through verse 15. I'm not, hopefully my slides reflected that. A few weeks ago, I told you a story about that when I was a kid, my friend and I uh, decided to ride our bikes through a rather large fertilized mud puddle on his farm. And and when we had finished our uh, escapades, uh, in approaching this house, you know, his, his mom asked us to stay put and she proceeded to cleanse us with the garden hose and dispose of our clothing and, and all of those things. And what, what I didn't tell you about the part of the story is how good it felt to get cleaned up afterward. Yes, we did have a good time. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do it again. But how good it felt you know when you've been outside and you've worked all day and you're dirty and you're sweaty or you've been slinging hay and it just feels like it's in every pore and and you finally have that chance to clean up or maybe you've been in the kitchen and you've just been cooking and preparing and you just feel like you've got flour like in your ears and belly button and everywhere and and it just feels so good just to kind of get cleaned up and put on fresh clothes it can feel amazing Felt amazing that his mom, my friend's mom, cared that we got cleaned up. That she cared that our clothes were clean, that we put on, that she had washed them already. Uh, his clothes, anyway. He, they let me borrow some of his clothes. And just the care behind it, the feeling of putting them on, it, it, it's an amazing feeling. Can, can anybody relate with this? Have you had that moment in your life where... You've just been dirty and sweaty and worn out and you get cleaned up and and there's nothing like putting on your clothes. And and moms, I realize you've probably washed your own clothes and made it happen, but think back to your childhood when maybe your mom washed them for you or, or a grandparent or a guardian or whoever was taking care of you. You know, in a sense, it is a similar feeling when we put on the clothes of righteous actions and attitudes towards others. It is living out how God created us to live. 
how we are to love others, how we are to treat others. For example, someone at the grocery store with their shopping cart totally full cuts in front of you. And you've got like five things in your hand. You know, you go in like, I just need five things. You don't get a cart. You're like, got them balanced. You know, you got one of them in your mouth. And you're like, oh yeah, sweet, the line's open. And then somebody with one huge full cart just cuts right in front of you. And you're like, wait, wait. (laughs) We could selfishly respond with a scowl and some huffing and puffing and even a rude comment. Or in humility, we could, we could smile, not condescendingly. Ask them how their day is going. Oh, it can be hard and it is often underappreciated. There is this peace of Christ that dwells within us when we do. When we know we've done the right thing for Christ, even if the other person hasn't, there is that peace of Christ that can dwell within us. You know that, so you can sleep at night, the, as the saying goes. Let's take a look at last week, and, and then we'll continue on our journey this morning. Last week, we looked at how through Christ, those of us who had a relationship with Christ, a saving relationship with Him because of Him, we all have salvation in Christ. And because of that salvation, we are all also one in Christ. And if we go back to the very beginning, we were created in Christ. And Christ was there before time began, just like God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it is through him and because of him, Christ is all and in all. And what that does is that unifies us, making us one with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of our background, our ethnicity, our language, our place of birth, our bank accounts, and anything and everything in, the, in between that man tries to segregate and label and ostracize. We looked at how we're all one race. That God made one race in the beginning. And that the different race classifications is, is man's classifying things, not God. And not that we don't celebrate our differences. Not that we don't appreciate different cultures as long as they're not sinful and what they are and what they represent. But we celebrate it by recognizing that we have more in common with that brother or sister in Christ on the other side of the world than we do with an unsaved grandparent that we've known our whole life. And that in doing so, we have a responsibility to learn about them. That is our response in in this world filled with racism and segregation. We have a responsibility to learn what we do, what we say, how we vote. How does that negatively affect our brother or sister with a different background, culture, ethnicity? From the womb to the tomb being holistically pro-life. And we looked at the story of John Perkins and I just wanted to reshare a couple of his quotes with you because they're so good. There's no reconciliation until you recognize the dignity of the other, until you see their view. You have to enter into the pain of the people. You've got to feel their need. And it is late 80s and still 
working towards this cause of reconciliation among blacks, whites, and every other ethnicity as well as those who are poor, specifically in southern Mississippi, and I think they have a branch in California now as well. His summary is, there is no institution more equipped and capable of bringing restitution than the church, but we have some hard work to do. And I love his hope of saying that it's the church. And I love the message of his story saying that it's the gospel that's going to bring this about. And he openly admits he doesn't know what that one thing is. But if we all do something together as the church, we'll be making some progress and some headway on it. And that was the last of several things that Paul in Colossians chapter 3 asked us to take off and take off that soiled, dirty old clothing, dispose of it, destroy it, get rid of it, put to death the things like sexual immorality and greed in our lives. And now we're being told to put on the glorious and righteous clothing of the new attitudes and behaviors of our new self in Christ. And so those who, who, trust, who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we are, we are God's chosen God's chosen, as Paul says here in this verse. It's an opening declaration. What an incredibly good news. It wasn't by happenstance. It wasn't by random accident. We were chosen. Now, I, can, I, can feel the, I can feel the wheels turning for the theologically minded. It's like, uh-oh, where are we going with this? Just hang in here with me. I love the story that Vodiv Bachman is a former pastor and he's currently the dean of African Christian Seminary. He tells about a conversation he's having with one of his adopted children. I think they have two biological children and eight adopted. And they're in their 50s and they've, they, they're like, well, we don't know when we're stopping, when the Lord tells us to. And he was explaining the concept of adoption to his child and, and about how brave and courageous their biological parents were to not abort them but to but to give them a chance at life and then how god orchestrated and moved vodi and his wife into adoption and chose to adopt this child and the child's eyes were big and just heart exploding of just realizing the fact that he was chosen and then he got sad all of a sudden. And he's like, what's wrong? He said, you mean, you mean my brother and sister that you didn't adopt? You didn't get to pick them? He's like, well, no, baby, we didn't. And it's like, that's so sad. Are they okay with that? <laughs> the adopted child recognizing and realizing that being chosen was almost of more value. And in the spiritual world is more value than the children who are given to Vodi and his wife biologically. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6 says this about being chosen. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted 
as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one, the beloved one being Christ. In John chapter 6, three different times in three different verses, Christ said, God brings to him those who will come to him. No one can come to Christ unless they are first drawn or granted by God. Three times, Jesus repeating himself in scriptures when it is repeated over and over. We saw it repeated twice in Ephesians. is making an emphasis, a proclamation, a statement of this truth. In John 15, 16, Jesus telling his followers, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. You see, God had the plan of salvation in place before creation. He chose us in him, predestining to adopt us through Christ. And now, I'm not interested in getting into a theological or doctrinal debate here over free will and election, over Calvinism and Arminianism and any other man's label on this. I'm just here to tell you what God says. And as you can see, there's multiple of the references, including throughout the Old Testament, where we can see this truth continued to be woven throughout the fabric of God's Word. And yes, there, there are objections to this that I too come back to. What about free will? If God has chosen us to be His before the beginning of time, why does God choose some and not others? And the more I ponder this, the more I wonder if the reason for our objections to this biblical truth of being chosen has more to do with our pride rather than anything else. See, as opposed to that we would humbly submit to God's will and sovereignty in all things, we put Him on the stand and judge Him according to what we think is fair. Or pridefully, we whom he created wish to know his purpose and plans and all things and think that we should be able to figure it all out and have all the answers. Rather than accept his will and pursue knowing him more fully. Would those prideful approaches not give us the created more credit than God the creator? Admittedly, this truth is hard to understand. Tony and Gary and I have had discussions at this at length about it. And, and at the end of it, we're like, we see God pr- say that we have to respond to his call, so that's the part of free will. And we see God choosing and electing and initiating. Obviously, we didn't ask Christ to come and die for us. God sent him. So God has initiated and chosen, and yet at the same time, there's, we have the freedom to reject him. Because you can't love something without rejecting. Oh, I'm sorry. There's like a spider web right here. Had to get it. I was like, oh, that's going to get me. I have to get it. (laughs) Sorry. Sorry. I got it. We're good. This truth is hard to understand. And just even we as elders go, we we don't know. But we know that both of those truths are true. Because scriptures say they are. And this pastor and theologian summarizes it well here in this quote, how these two sides of God's truth, his his sovereignty in choosing us, and he references Romans 9, and our responsibility to confess and believe, and he references Romans 10, 
reconcile is impossible for us, insert the created, to fully understand. But Scripture declares both perspectives of salvation to be true. And we can see that in John 1, 12 and 13. And it's our duty to acknowledge both and joyfully accept them by faith. There are going to be things in scriptures like this we're not going to fully understand. And that's okay. Does that mean that Christ didn't come and die and save us? We throw a lot out the window? Of course not. Of course not. Who are we to think that we can understand every single truth that God has given us? The creator who is omniscient, all-knowing, who is sovereign, all-powerful. Who are we to think that? And again, let us not be tempted to become the judge and put God on the stand and say, this doesn't make sense, so I'm done with it. Let us instead say, God, increase our faith. Help us to joyfully accept this by faith. At the end of the day, God is God and we are not. Period. And because he is, brothers, sisters, we are holy and dearly loved. Now being holy does not mean we no longer sin or are truly without sin. It does not mean that when, but it does mean that when God looks at us, he no longer sees our sin, but instead sees Christ. Christ makes us holy through choosing us, as we've already covered, by initiating his love for us through his death and resurrection. And becoming holy does not end with our moment of salvation, but it is where it begins. Verse Peter 1.13 tells us we are to be holy because Christ is holy. And we accomplish this by consistently and persistently pursuing Christ each day. Through striving to know him and choosing to love him through a time of prayer, which is our communication with him, right? It's talking to him. It's, it's asking him to speak to us through his word. And through our time in his word, studying, learning, meditating. The characteristics of a holy life that we are to put on and live out. We're going to cover those in a minute. But first, pause. Pause with me for just a minute here. I'm going to have you stand up while we do this so nobody falls asleep. Stand up with me real quick if you're able to. I'm going to come down here for just a minute. While you're standing, hold on to the chair in front of you if you need to. You don't have to close your eyes, but just take a slow, deep breath in through your nose. Let it out through your mouth slowly. Brothers, sisters, you are dearly loved. Dearly loved. You are dearly loved by Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our brother, our friend. You are dearly, wholly, perfectly, completely loved.
that should just well up joy and tears inside us. If we grasp that knowledge and that truth, it doesn't matter what you've done. That does not change the fact that you are loved. You are loved. You may be seated. And yet those moments when we think he's distant and far, those moments we wonder and we doubt, we're looking at ourself and our feelings, aren't we? We're looking at our circumstances rather than the cross. I would also add to not let what is going on around you or what is happening to you affect how you believe that Christ loves you. Instead, look to the cross. We are dearly loved. Next in our text, we are instructed to put on the saintly wardrobe. Let me explain here. When we are living out the life that we are called to live after trusting Christ Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we are choosing for our actions to be pure. We are intentionally living out our lives in this way, not because all of a sudden we have a a list of do's and don'ts to live out and to live by, but because we love our Savior. And he gives us plain instruction in here how to love him. Because he knows that our default is our sin nature. That we default to doing wrong without intentionally choosing to do right. Because even the motives of our hearts can get muddled up in all of it. And so he tells us, you must choose to love me in this way. And that way you know. And then when we live that way, when we're living within the calling of his grace on our lives, it feels amazing. Better than clean, dry clothes after a hot, sweaty day at work. And so we are to now put on this saintly wardrobe and living out this life. And, and all of these garments to put on have to do with how we interact with others. Not one of them have to do with ourselves. Our part is seeking Christ. Getting to know him more. And this is how we interact with those around us. We're to put on compassion. That word just keeps coming up, doesn't it? Pity, mercy from our, from our bowels, a longing. The opposite of compassion is having a hard heart towards others. Oh, that's their problem. I don't have to deal with that. That's on them. Whereas compassion is a response to a person or situation that moves us to action. Action being prayer, support, or help. And not just to the people we like, but to everyone. The more I have learned about poverty in this area, Christ has moved compassion inside me towards it, causing me to 
need and want to do something about it. And so I've been volunteering at Crosslines the last several months. And maybe you've found yourself with some extra time on your hands recently. They need help. They need help in the food pantry. Nine to one, especially on Tuesdays and Wednesdays right now. Can you give a couple hours? Can you give a four hour? Can you give four hours to help hand out food? I've had opportunities to pray with people and doing so. And sometimes just smiling at them and telling them to have a good day where they don't feel shamed when they're picking up a box of food is one of the most gospel-inspired actions that we can do in those moments. We are to put on kindness. Kindness is to promote the happiness or welfare of others over ourselves. It is the opposite of selfishness towards others. Last week's sermon, we learned that if we're doing something or saying something that could be offensive to somebody from a different ethnicity, background, or culture, we should change that as much as we are able to. And John Perkins did exactly that. You know, when he was called to move back, he he moved into the poor neighborhoods and lived among them as he started his ministry. It was how he showed kindness, entering into their world, as his quote stated, entering into their pain, and then acting on that, putting their welfare and happiness above itself. We're also to put on humility. Humil- humility is modesty, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, or it has been described as an absence of self-exaltation. I love that, an absence of self-exaltation. And it's the opposite of being prideful towards others. Thinking that we have things figured out because we're not a welfare or don't have to stop at cross signs once a month. Pride. At any moment, we could be in that line. It's all God's. Humility was countercultural to the Colossians and just as countercultural to us today. The world tells us, hey, follow your heart. God says, follow Christ and serve others. It says nothing about following your heart in Scripture. The world says, be true to yourself. God says, be true to Christ. And again, love others. The truest you can be to yourself is to become more like Christ. We are to put on gentleness, mildness of disposition, and meekness. I'm going to pause for a second. In case you're a guy here this morning and you're thinking, this all sounds like wimpy characteristics to me. I'm here to tell you, you actually takes far more strength to put these on than it does 
to be prideful, selfish, or domineering. Anybody and everybody can do that. You can do that without Christ all day, every day. It takes real strength to put these on. And by the way, gentleness or meekness is described as strength under control. It's not a maybe pay me wimp or anything like that. It is you have strength. You have the strength of Christ in you. You have the strength to stay true to what you believe. You have the strength to fight for what is there and should be fought for. But it's under control. Horses have been known to take on and defeat many different types of bears, and yet that same horse, under the skillful hand of a trainer, can be trained to be ridden and become gentle towards its master, falling around like a little puppy. Another example of this that comes to mind are the missionaries and organizations we highlighted in our missions conference a few weeks ago. The quiet strength that is under control that propels them to give up the things of this world to follow the callings that God has given them. Or the parent who is much wiser and stronger than the child that exercises self-control towards the unknowingly child, not physically abusing or verbally abusing them, but lovingly and creatively disciplining them when they need it, not dominating over them. We are also to put on patience, long-suffering towards others, insults or wrongs done to us, The opposite of this would be if we were impulsive and we reacted. Patient with someone else means that we allow God to work and move in their lives without us trying to impulsively control or manipulate them. Quick bit of marriage advice here. Spouse, you cannot change your spouse. It's impossible. So if you're still trying to do that, stop it. It's a waste of effort and energy. Put all that effort and energy towards praying for them instead. I'm not saying they don't need to change. God knows I have a long ways to go yet still too. But instead, pray for your spouse. Parents, guardians, you can't change your kids. You might be able to discipline behavior, but you can't change their heart. Only God can. So make sure that when you are correcting them, point them to Christ first. Point them to his word. Don't just do behavior modification. Therefore, be patient with others in their journey in the faith. Don't we want others to be patient with us in our journey? And Paul goes on, we are to bear with one another. And that means to endure or hold someone else up as opposed to ignoring them. It's helping and encouraging and supporting someone when they're in need. And yes, we each have a responsibility to work, to provide for our own needs, our own families. And then after that, we're to look beyond into our faith family and into the community at large 
other needs out there that we are able to do something about. For example, there's two families right now needing meals due to surgeries that they've had and procedures. Is that a way that you can help out? Sometimes it may be just, I'm praying for you and you shoot them a text. And that's absolutely the most powerful way that we can endure or hold someone else up. Now when it comes to bearing one another their, and their sins and consequences of their sins, I like how John Piper sums it up. He says, our job in this regard is to admonish or rebuke or warn each other about attitudes and habits and plans which are wrong and then point each other to Christ. We have to be very careful and cautious and seek a lot of prayer and wisdom to know when we engage if somebody is in the consequences of their sins and what roles we should play in helping them in those moments. But we know for sure our role as a loving brother or sister in Christ done in love to admonish, rebuke, and warn each other in those. And then, last of all, Paul says to put on forgiveness, which means we no longer hold the offense over them. And obviously the opposite of this would be we seek revenge towards them. See, forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgetting the wrong done to us or a loved one. Nor does forgiveness mean we no longer feel the pain from what was done. We should still long for justice. And we should take necessary steps to protect ourselves or others from further injury when the case merits that. Forgiveness also does not always equal trusting the offender again. That forgiveness is a process and depending on the offense may take a lifetime. That's why Jesus says to forgive 70 times 7 when it rises back up and the anger and the hate and the bitterness starts to infect you again. That's when you have to choose to forgive again. And I think the hardest thing for us to do in forgiveness is to think that we're not good with justice still happening for the consequences of that person's choices being unmet or undone. They will happen. I promise you. We may not see it. We may not learn of it. It may, need, may not be on this side of our lives here on earth. But it will be dealt with. God does not leave any sin unpunished. Neil Anderson in his book, Bondage Breaker, wrote this about unforgiveness. Most of the ground that Satan gains in the lives of Christians is due to unforgiveness. It's like an open and unprotected wound exposed to infection. Unforgiveness is an open wound that Satan could get his foot in the door of our hearts through. 
inhibiting our fellowship with Christ, our ability to worship, and not to mention even our physical health. Moving on to verse 14. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. If there was a thread that held all of these things to put on, all of these garments that, we've put, that we're supposed to put on, if there was one thing that tied it all together and connected them, it would be love. It's the perfect bond of unity. You see, because when we love and truly love others, we will be compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient. We will bear with one another and we will forgive one another. An important observation worth repeating is that these holy garments that we are to put on, they're all about our relationships with others. And then our last verse of our text this morning, verse 15. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. It kind of feels like Paul tacked that on in the end. No. He didn't. We have everything to be thankful for because we are dearly loved. And in being dearly loved, we know that God's Son came to this earth to become like what He created and lived a life here, 30 years of it, working with His hands, growing up, learning, sweating. Probably got sick a couple times. Helping mom with chores, helping dad with chores. Maybe even bullied as a kid. Facing all of the things that we face. And then choosing. And while the physical death was significant, absolutely. What is unfathomable is the spiritual side where he took on every single sin from eternity past to eternity future, separating his fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit that he's known for all eternity in that moment in time and dying. But as we sang in a couple of the songs this morning, he arose again, defeating death. Therefore, brother, sister, we are what? Dearly loved. Dearly loved. I'd like to close in prayer. Prayer I did not write, but a prayer appropriate for this morning. And then we have a video song that to reflect or sing along with. Gracious Heavenly Father, today we remember the call to love well all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. 
We are recognizable as one of your disciples by the way we love others, as you tell us in John 13. This would be an unbearable burden if you didn't love us as you do. So, Father, we love you and anybody only because you first loved us, because you chose us. Because of your great love for us, Jesus, we don't have to fear judgment day. Your cross is judgment day for all who trust in you. You took the punishment we deserve for all the ways that we love poorly. I now rely on the love you have for us, for me. In that assurance, here's my plea, Jesus. Help me love well the members of my immediate family. Help us all to do that. They are at the same time the easiest and the hardest people to love day in and day out. Sometimes I think I have the greatest family on the earth. Sometimes I think we trade one another in for a Diet Coke. (laughs) Bring your kindness, compassion, patience, and perseverance to bear. Help us to provoke one another to love and good deeds and not just provoke one another. Jesus, help us to love our friends well. Help us not to take them for granted. Help us to know how to give our, free, our friends feedback lovingly and receive feedback from them without being defensive. Forgive us when we want friendship to be simply a mutual admiration society rather than a community of groaning, grace, and growth. Help us to know how to love the irritating people in our lives, those we try hard to avoid. Help us know how to love the foolish people in our lives, the ones making destructive choices, the ones I'm mad at right now. Help me know how to love the depressed and sad people in my life. We instinctively try to fix them and make them happy, but we know that's not really what they need. Help us to love the poor, the orphans, the widows, the marginalized, the least and the lost, for among them we will surely find you, Jesus. We pray in your compassionate name. Amen.